several years ago, had a study with an individual. And I learned some very sad things from this man. This is a fellow who claimed that in the church where he attended, the Spirit was, in fact, granting miraculous spiritual gifts. And this fellow was a real go-getter in his church. One of his goals was to study with as many people as he possibly could to teach them that, in fact, the Holy Spirit was moving directly within his congregation, was, in fact, granting miraculous spiritual gifts. And so we got together. We had a couple of studies. And one of them was dealing with this very issue. And when we got done, he told me something that was very surprising and very sad and very frightening. He said that he had studied this issue with dozens of people. And he said the surprising fact was that most of them, almost all of them, had no idea what they really believed, and they had no idea why they were supposed to believe it when it came to the issue of miraculous spiritual gifts. And when we consider that, is it any wonder that churches of all faiths, brands, and sizes are going through turmoil regarding this very issue? How does the Holy Spirit work? Even among brethren, this is a topic which many of us are just scared to discuss. We read in our Bibles that God granted miraculous gifts of the Spirit, and then we hear preachers say, but He doesn't do it today, and we're not exactly sure why. So instead of just dealing with the issue, we try to avoid it. And whenever it comes up, we just try to change the topic. Because we want to hold the party line, and we don't want to question. But brethren, we're not supposed to hold party lines. We're not supposed to believe things just because we've always believed them. We're supposed to go to our Bibles and believe what the Bible says. And so we need to ask the question, what does the Bible say? Miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, does He still give them to us? And let's just answer this question based on the Word of God. Now, before we actually get into answering this question, there are two things that we need to understand, two preliminary points. Number one, we need to understand what question we are asking. We are asking, what does the Holy Spirit do? We are not asking, what can the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit is divine. He's God. He's deity. The Holy Spirit can do whatever He wants. And clearly, from the Bible, we recognize that if the Holy Spirit wants to grant miraculous gifts to the Spirit, He can do it. So I don't want to hear anybody say that I'm putting God in a box, because I am not. I am not telling you what God can and cannot do. I am not saying what the Holy Spirit can and cannot do. That is not the question. Secondly, we are not asking the question, what should we do in our worship? That's the way a lot of folks say, hey, do y'all do miraculous gifts at your church? It has nothing to do with what we do. We could do and try and toil and work, but unless the Holy Spirit is going to work, we can't do anything miraculous. And so we're not asking, what should we do? We are asking, what does the Holy Spirit do? Does the Holy Spirit still work by granting miraculous gifts of prophecy and tongues and knowledge and healing and, and revelation and all those gifts that we can learn about through the New Testament? Does He use them today? That is our question. 
And that's what we want to answer. The second preliminary point we need to understand is exactly how to answer this question. Because we need to understand before we ever begin that as we ask this question, does he use them today, we cannot answer it based on emotions and based on feelings and based on experiences. Look in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, the Scripture there says, not everyone, in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Here were people that had had experiences. They had experienced miraculous gifts. They had prophesied, they believed. They had cast out demons and done many wonders, but Jesus said He never knew them. Had they actually done these things? No, they hadn't. Jesus said, I never knew you. Not, I knew you once, and that's when you did them, and then you fell away, but I never knew you. These people had experiences, but did their experiences prove anything? Absolutely not. Look in Acts 19. We can look at it from the other side. In Acts 19, beginning at verse 1, it says, and it happened in Acts 19, that while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, We've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they had heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. Here were men that had not had any experience as such, and they said, we don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. Did their lack of experience prove anything? Absolutely not. And so what we learn is that no matter what position you're going to take on this, experiences don't matter. Or lack thereof. How are we going to answer this then? We've got to answer it based on the revelation of God. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, God says to us through Paul, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that's teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Scripture makes us complete. It is complete for teaching. And so whatever we're going to teach on this issue, whatever we're going to believe on this issue, we can go to the Scripture and we can find out the truth. And what we need to understand is that once we've answered this based on Scripture, then we need to apply our understanding of Scripture to our experiences and not the other way around. We must never interpret the Bible based on our experiences, but always interpret our experiences based on the Bible. And that is how we are going to answer this question today. But what is the answer? As we begin to answer this, I think the first thing that we need to take note of is the purpose for the Holy Spirit's work with miraculous gifts. Why did the Holy Spirit ever use them? If you're following along the page I gave you, flip over to page 2. Why did the Holy Spirit ever use these miraculous gifts? It stands to reason if we can figure out why, we ought to be able to know if He still needs to use them today or not. I want you to begin by looking in John chapter 16. 
John chapter 16, verses 12 and 13. In John chapter 16, verses 12 and 13, the Scripture there says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. The Holy Spirit used miraculous gifts. He used revelation and prophecy and tongues in order to reveal the will and Word of God. He's going to guide you into all truth, the Scripture says. But I also want you to notice Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, the Hebrew writer says to us, If the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him, God also bearing witnesses both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. The miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit were used not only to reveal the Word of God, but to confirm that what was being taught was in fact the Word of God. Here comes Paul or Peter into a town and says, I've got some amazing message I need you to hear. How are we going to know it's true? Why, he raised somebody from the dead. He took that blind guy that's been begging at the gate of the city for 20 years, and now he can see. Maybe we ought to listen to this guy. It confirms that what is being taught is the Word of God. And finally, look in 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, we're going to begin reading at verse 1. In 1 Corinthians 14, beginning at verse 1, Paul wrote, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands them. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesy. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? And on it goes to describe how these gifts are supposed to be used. But what we learn from this is that the gifts were given in order to edify and in order to convict folks of the Word of God. To edify, to build them up. That's why folks who could speak in a tongue miraculously, if they weren't going to interpret, they were supposed to keep their mouths shut because it was about edifying folks. And if they were speaking in Spanish and none of us speak Spanish, nobody's being edified. We're just being confused. And so, when we notice this, we find out that the Holy Spirit has specific reasons for granting miraculous gifts in order to reveal the Word of God, in order to confirm that what was being taught is the Word of God, and in order to edify and convict people with the Word of God. I want you to notice what it was never used for. It was never used to entertain. It was never used for financial gain. And it was never used for emotional fulfillment. Not one single solitary time in all of Scripture were miraculous gifts ever used for any of those modern-day reasons. I also want you to understand this fact, that miraculous gifts were not used for the purpose even of healing the sick. Now, I know that sounds shocking because I certainly know that one of the miraculous gifts was healing. 
and that the sick were healed at times using miraculous gifts. But even at those points, that was just a side effect of miraculous gifts. Because the point even behind healing was not that somebody who was sick would be healed. The point behind the healing was that we could know this is a man of God. We ought to listen to him. What he's teaching is the Word of God, and we need to listen to it. We need to glorify God, not just try to heal the sick. I know that because I know Paul, who could heal folks, even raise somebody from the dead. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 20. Just a, almost a side comment that helps us see something. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 20, the Scripture there says, Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I blessed in my lead of sick. Now, why on earth did Paul, who had the gift of healing, leave one of his brethren in, in Miletus sick? Why didn't he just heal him? Because that's not the purpose of the gift. The purpose of the gift, even of healing, was not in order to heal people. It was in order to demonstrate the power of God so that folks could be edified, so that God's Word would be revealed, and so that it would be confirmed. That's what it was used for. And evidently, healing this wouldn't accomplish those things, so Paul didn't do it. You see that? For the purpose. For the very specific purpose the Holy Spirit was accomplishing something. But we also notice from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8 through 10 that the miraculous gifts were used, were going to be used for a specific time. In other words, the Holy Spirit realized that there was going to come a time when His purpose had been accomplished with these gifts. And he would no longer be using them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8, the Scripture there says, Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they'll cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away. There is going to come a time when the perfect comes, and the purpose of the work of miraculous gifts is going to be accomplished, and we won't be using them anymore, because the perfect will be there. And so the purpose to be accomplished and miraculous gifts were only for a time. Now that's our question then. What is the time? What is the perfect? When does the perfect come? Has it already come? Are we still waiting on it? Because if we're still waiting on it, no doubt we still have miraculous gifts. If it's already come, then we don't have miraculous gifts. It's just that simple. If you're following along in the little paper which I dropped just a moment ago, we're now going to move down into the bottom section. First Timothy 13, 8 through 13. Because we want to ask a question. What about this part and perfect? What does that mean? How do those two things relate to one another? Well, in this passage, what does perfect mean? Typically, when we look at this passage and folks look at this passage, we ask them the question, what does perfect mean? Well, we'll say if perfect means sinless. So let's look at that. What if it does mean that? Let's, let's ask some questions about this because if perfect means sinless, what does in part mean? Well, part means not perfect, and if perfect means sinless, that means part means sinful, doesn't it? All right? But if we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what was the in part? Miraculous gifts. So if the in part is sinful, guess what that means about miraculous gifts? That means miraculous gifts are sinful. Now, brethren, I don't believe that for a minute. My Bible says in James 1.17 that the Lord is not tempted, nor does He tempt others to sin. I don't believe He would give gifts that to use are a sin. And so the foundation for our question must be wrong. And so we recognize then, if miraculous gifts are not sinful, which they're not, then the part must not refer to sinfulness, and perfect must not refer to sinlessness. 
We need to understand this as we examine this passage. Otherwise, we're going to have all kinds of problems in figuring out when the perfect came or is coming. Well, what does it mean then? Well, part means exactly that. It means part. It means something that's partial. It means something that's incomplete. And therefore, perfect means that which is not in part, that which is complete, that which is whole. The part means something that only partially accomplishes the task. The perfect is something that fully accomplishes the task. So as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, we're not looking at something about sinfulness or sinlessness. We're looking about something that's in part and something that's going to come that is complete. So let's just ask the question, what is the complete sin? What is the perfect? Now, when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, let's just begin at verse 8. The Scripture there says, Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. What does this passage teach us? Well, first of all, it points out that miraculous gifts are going to be used. And during the time that miraculous gifts are used, and just by the way, a free comment here, they started in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, we know that. But during the time that miraculous gifts are used, we find that love abides. But also, in verse 13, you've got hope and faith and hope along with that as well. But there's going to come a time when the perfect comes. And when the perfect comes, that's going to change things. Because after that, miraculous gifts are going to cease. They're going to fail. They're going to be done away. But wait a minute. Faith, hope, and love abide. That means they continue on. So there's going to come a time, Paul said, I know we're using miraculous gifts now, but there's going to come a time when those miraculous gifts aren't going to be used, but we're still going to have faith, hope, and love. You see that? That's what the text tells us. So now let's just ask some questions. What is this perfect? The first response that most folks have when they talk about the perfect is, well, that's Jesus, because after all, Jesus is perfect. Not only sinless, but he was complete. He's whole, right? And so when Jesus returns, that's when the perfect has come. And that is when there will be no more miraculous gifts. But brethren, if that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is teaching, then the Bible contradicts itself. And allow me to show you the contradiction. If we look in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, the Scripture there says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things, what? Not seen. We walk by faith, not by sight, right? Now, First Corinthians 13 tells us that after the perfect comes, faith is going to continue on. But Hebrews 11.1 1 demonstrates to us that after Jesus returns, there's no more faith. When L.B. led to talk about the Lord's Supper, he read a passage that pointed out that Jesus would be revealed and we would what? See Him. It won't be faith anymore to be silent. You know, I don't have faith that I'm, I have a Bible. I can see it. It's right there. I mean, I, I'm walking by sight that I have a Bible right here. 
After Jesus comes, we're no longer walking by faith. We'll be walking by sight. We'll see Him. We'll be in heaven. We'll see it. We're walking by faith now because we haven't seen it. And so you see there's a contradiction. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, faith continues on after the perfect time. But if the perfect is Jesus, Hebrews 11.1 1 says that it doesn't. Look at Romans 8, 24 and 25. Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. In Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25, the Scripture there says, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Hope is the expectation of what is not seen. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 says that after the perfect comes, hope will abide. But Romans 8, 24-25 demonstrates that after Jesus returns, we're no longer walking in hope. Because once Jesus is there, it's, it's seen, isn't it? It's not hope now, it's seen. Again, I don't hope that I've got a Bible. There it is. I see it. I know it. Before we got here today, I hoped that you would be here. I'm not hoping that anymore because I see you. You see the difference? First Corinthians 13 says, that after the perfect comes, faith, hope, and love will abide. But these other passages say that after Jesus returns, faith and hope. We don't walk by those anymore. Now, brethren, I believe that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. First Corinthians 14.33 says God is not the author of confusion. So I don't believe in one passage he'll tell us something and in another passage he'll tell us the exact opposite. That must mean, then, that if we're going to say Jesus is the perfect in First Corinthians 13, we've got something wrong. While I believe that Jesus is perfect and Jesus is complete and Jesus is whole, I don't believe that that's what Paul was talking about. He's talking about something else. Perfect, complete, and whole. But what is it? Let's go back to our part versus perfect. Here's why we went through that. If part is that which accomplishes the task partially, and whole is that which does it wholly, then we need to take a look at, well, what was the part and what did it do? And then what does it wholly? Let me just ask you a very simple question. You like to eat? How many of you like apple pie? Anybody here like apple pie? If I gave you a piece of an apple pie, what's the whole thing? Apple pie, right? It's not a pumpkin pie, is it? If I gave you a piece and the piece was apple pie, then the whole pie is apple pie. That's not hard, is it? That's not a hard question to ask. That's not a trick question. That's very simple. So, let's ask that question about this. What is the part? Well, the part was a miraculous gift. What did they do? They revealed. They confirmed. They edified and convicted. That's what the part was. It was the way that the Holy Spirit revealed, confirmed, edified, and convicted. But it only accomplished it partially. Well, what does it wholly? Well, we've actually already read a passage that answers that question. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the Scripture there says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Once we have all Scripture, what does that mean? That means we have all of God's will revealed. 
That means everything can be confirmed as being God's Word by just going back to what He revealed. That means if I want to be edified or convicted, I can go right here. And I have it all. All Scripture is inspired by God. But now let's consider our charge. We have all Scripture. We've got it right here. We can read it. We can study it. We can know it. We can understand it. So, no miraculous gifts. Okay, that can work. Faith, hope, and love. Do we still have to have that? I've got the Bible, but I don't see Jesus and I don't see heaven, so I'm still walking by faith, aren't I? I've got the Bible, but I don't see Jesus and I don't see heaven. It's still an earnest expectation of something that's going to come in the future, isn't it? And yes, I still have to love you. And you still have to love me. And so it says, doesn't it? And so what we learn is that the perfect, not waiting for Jesus' return, what they were waiting for was the Scripture to be revealed. And it was. And when the Scripture was completely revealed, there was no longer a need for miraculous gifts to accomplish in part what the Scripture would do completely. And so what do we learn from this? Our conclusion is that the Scriptures have been completed. The perfect has come. The part, which is miraculous gifts, have been done away. Remember what our question was. Our question wasn't what can God do and what should we do. The question is what does the Spirit do? The Spirit did something for a while. He did it for a purpose, and that purpose was fulfilled. And now He's doing it through some other means, a better means, He said, because it's complete. It's whole. It's not partial. I want you to notice some things before we finish up here beyond what you've got on your paper there. Paul used a couple of illustrations to describe this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, Paul said, When I was a child, 1 Corinthians 13, 11, When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Paul described this whole issue of going from miraculous gifts to using the Scripture as growing up. He said, as he was talking about their time, the church is in its childhood. It's in its infancy. And so right now, we're doing things in a childlike way. But there's going to come a time when we grow up. And when we grow up, we'll put those childish things away. And it's so amazing because in today's world, people who want to claim that they have the direct operation of the Holy Spirit in their lives, granting them knowledge and prophecy and revelation, they want to claim to be more mature spiritually, but Paul said the more mature spiritual church is the one that just goes by the perfect, the Scripture. It's the infant, immature, childish church that had the miraculous gift. Why would we want to go back to childhood? when we can be mature. Then he used another illustration in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 13. He said, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Paul said, We've got these miraculous gifts, but now it's just part. We just have part of it. We don't have it all. But one day we're going to have it all. And that's a better day than right now. Paul says that then it's going to be better. He's saying that we have it better than even he had it. He said for them, it's just like looking in a mirror. Now, their mirrors are a lot more like shiny hubcaps than our modern mirrors. 
you could look in it and you could see an image, but it'd be a little bit distorted and unclear. And he said, that's where we are right now. We're still learning things. We don't have the whole picture. We don't know. That's why you guys are writing me questions and I'm having to reveal more to you. Because we don't have it all. But there's going to be a day, brethren, when we have it all. And we can know. When that day comes, we won't use the part anymore. Why would we go back to the partial? And we have the complete. I guess that's exactly what people want to do today, and they'll say, well, Edwin, all right, that all sounded good, but you just can't tell me that that book can do more to edify and convict people than a miracle. Why, if folks could prophesy, if they could heal folks, if they could raise folks from the dead, that's when people would believe. Now look in Luke 16. In Luke 16, we read the story of Lazarus and the rich man. You remember they both died. Lazarus went to paradise and the rich man went to torment. And there they are in Hades. And the rich man sees Lazarus over there in comfort and he's, he's going on and on about all this and he wants Lazarus to come over and get, get him some water and, and Abraham says, no, it doesn't work that way. And so then the rich man says this in verse 27 of Luke 16. I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Because they got their Old Testament Bible. You, you, let them hear Moses and the prophets. I've already given them what they need to know. Well, this rich man said, oh, Father Abraham, no. But if one goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. If they, they're not going to believe the Scriptures, Father Abraham, but if they see a miracle, they'll believe. What did Abraham say? He said to him, wow, I never thought of that. No. What Abraham said is, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. They've got the Scripture. If they're not going to hear that, Miracles aren't going to help them either. So in our finite wisdom, we might say, oh, miracles would really help us out. God said, oh, no. If folks aren't going to believe the Scripture, they're not going to believe even if we perform miracles. And so, God's given us the Scripture. What we need to do is learn it, and use it, and teach it. And the folks who believe the Scriptures will be saved. And if they won't believe the Scriptures, they wouldn't have been saved even if we could heal the sick and raise the dead. And so the Holy Spirit no longer needs to use miraculous gifts to accomplish His purposes. The perfect has come. The in part has been done away. I hope that's helpful to you. I hope you... I appreciated this. I hope you could keep up as we were going through. Why don't you pull out your songbook, please? Number 470. Do you know my Jesus?
I believe the answer to our question this morning was very simple. I, I recognize that we had to go through several scriptures and look at several aspects of this, but I think it's clear. Now, I don't know what you've experienced, and I'm not going to begin to try to explain away any experiences that you've had. But if you've had experiences or feelings that have led you to believe that the Holy Spirit is operating with miraculous gifts through you or through someone else today, I just want to remind you of what Matthew 7, 21 through 23 said. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, there were people. They said, Lord, he said, not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, so unto the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And then he will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These folks had experiences, they had feelings, but they had been misled by them. So let me encourage you. Take what you've learned from Scripture and use that, use that to explain your experiences. Don't allow your experiences to determine what you believe about Scripture. It just doesn't work that way. Otherwise, you too will hear one day, Depart from me. I never knew you.